Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey everyone, a quick warning before we start. While this episode is fun and entertaining, it also discusses sexual assault. Now, here's Evan. On today's show, actress, author, activist, Rose McGowan. Known for her roles in films such as Wes Craven's Scream, Darren Stein's Jawbreaker, and Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror, and for playing Paige Matthews on the WB's Charmed, McGowan discusses being a lightning rod for criticism on social media. You know, when people come at me for stuff, I'm like, yo, I'm a 46-year-old white female. Of course I'm going to fuck up. Of course I am. Rebelling against the Hollywood system. The night before filming, I went out and bought, and you have to buy four outfits. I had to buy them for the stunt person as well as me. So I was at the mall, and I found that skirt with the swirl, and I knew the camera was going to go on my butt. And I was like, ha-ha. It was just my way of, like, you know, middle finger. Donald Trump. I know men in power. I know them like the back mm. of my hand. I know them. I've been dealing with these fuckers for a long, long time. And one of the things is like, why should I die for Donald Trump's dumb little dick wrapped around my neck? No, thank you. Barack Obama. When I make pronouncements like I think he's a fail, you know, it's a bummer. And people are like, fuck you, Rose, because they would rather yell at me than maybe look at somebody who's not perfect. And Harvey Weinstein, who McGowan alleges raped her in 1997 in a hotel room at the Sundance Film Festival. According to journalist Ronan Farrow's coverage, Weinstein at one point hired the private intelligence agency Black Cube to spy on McGowan as part of Weinstein's effort to silence her. I feel like he and I are strapped in this battle together until one of us is dead. And it's a really disgusting feeling. I just would love to be able to be like other people and live my life. That would be really nice, you know? Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? This is Evan Ross Katz. This is Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I'm here with my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. We are here in the Standard East Village um, recording this episode. Okay, so Evan, when you texted me the other day about our guest for this episode, Rose McGowan, I was shocked. And then you were telling me that you two are actually friends and have been for a really long time. Yeah. I interviewed her for a story in 2015 and then... We kept in touch. Primarily, you had mentioned with, uh, like, your Instagram stories and stuff like that. And so I'm really curious about your ability to create and maintain meaningful friendships online. I'm a big proponent of making sure everyone feels heard. And I feel like, as the community manager of my platform, I play a pivotal role in making sure that people that want to be heard are heard. I mean, I've been surprised by how many celebrities will find their way over to me. I mean, like, the one that comes to mind that was, like, the most random was, like, 
when I woke up one day and I saw that Olivia Wilde was following me and then I DM'd her to be like, I don't deserve this, but like glad to have you here. And then she responded and we sort of began a little back and forth. I think that like 99 times out of 100, you message a celebrity and they respond. And I really like those moments so much because it's like, I appreciate the trust that people like that have in me to just like air their real thoughts and not feel as though they're like talking to someone in the media. Cause I don't really view myself as like within the media. I kind of just do what I do. How do you not get exhausted by it? I find myself getting overwhelmed. So I go through like phases where I'll like be posting things regularly and then just stop for months and months just because I can't be bothered. Well, I will say like when I'm like with my boyfriend or something, like I'm not like hanging off the side of the bed with my phone, like below, like out of sight, like, you know, posting. My worst nightmare. Yeah, like I I truly, I pride myself on the ability to like not be on it as much as I am on it. And I think that, I think the answer to that question, honestly, my brain just works really quickly. It always has. I'm not saying that in a bragging way because it doesn't, speed does not necessarily mean like intelligent thoughts are flowing. But so like, I'm at a place where like, I can see an image of something now and the reaction happens instantly. And then I'll just, it takes 10 seconds to type it up and then I'll, you know, edit real quick just to make sure there's not any typos, even though as anyone that follows me knows, they seep in and I just get it up. It's fascinating to hear how you navigate sort of just being yourself versus it as a tool and extension for you professionally. I'm never thinking about it professionally. For better or for worse, I just don't have the ability to not be myself, which is funny because for the first two thirds of my life, that was such a detriment in so many ways. And it be, you know, and I think this is, a somewhat common queer sentiment, which is like the things you hated most about yourself early on in your life become like the things you love most. And I think in that same vein, it's like that ability to only be me is able to come through so quickly. So tell me then how you go from interviewing Rose years ago to today having her on the podcast and the friendship that's happened in those intervening years. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's interesting. We kept in touch for quite a while. Our first interview was in 2015. We were at the Bowery Hotel and we and we stayed after the interview and just kind of kicked it. And I definitely felt that sort of vibe that you get from some interviews where it's like, I like you beyond this contained hour. Where I've had interviews with celebrities who I really did like, but just there was no, I knew that like this was the end of our moment together. And with Rose, I, I definitely didn't feel that way. And then she ended up FaceTiming me when the story that I wrote about her came out, thanking me. Then immediately following the 2016 election, I asked her if she would come into Mike, which was where you and I were both working at the time. And uh, I asked her if she would do like a reaction. This was literally, I think like the morning after his election. And she came in and did a reaction video for Mike, sort of about how she was feeling. And then when everything happened with Harvey, I sent her a note. I let her know that I understood that this was going to be a time in which a lot of people are going to be reaching out to her. And I just, I felt that as a friend, I needed to express the fact that I, I was here for her and that I loved her. And then we didn't talk for 2017, 2018. And then I think once she started getting back on social media, 
she started messaging me in response to stories I'd post, you know? And I was reminded of like how funny she is. And I thought that this podcast would be a great platform to show that side of Rose. I wanted to show the the energy that was our DMs. I wanted to bring that into a conversation. Amazing. She is the star of Doom Generation, Scream, Jawbreaker, Planet Terror, Death Proof. She played Paige Matthews on Charmed, joining the cast. Uh-uh, Paige Hallowell. No, wait, you're right. Oh, shit, I fucked up. You're right, it was Paige Matthews. They were the Hallowells. Oh, my God, I just got that one wrong. All the Charmed fans gonna come for me. I'm coming for you now. I'm sorry. <laughs> she played Paige Matthews on Charmed, joining the cast in season four and filming 112 episodes. She has appeared in music videos for Marilyn Manson, RuPaul, and Charlie XCX. She is an author, penning her 2018 memoir, Brave. She is a musician whose debut single, RM486, was released in 2015. She is a whistleblower, being named as one of the silence breakers in Time Magazine's Person of the Year list in 2017 for speaking out about her own experiences of sexual harassment and rape at the hands of Harvey Weinstein. In addition to Time, Rose has appeared on the covers of Rolling Stone, Interview, Entertainment Weekly, The Hollywood Reporter, GQ, Seventeen, Maxim, and more. She is a human. She is a warrior. She is my friend. She is Rose McGowan. Hi, Evan. Hi. Hi. How did I do? You did very well. And I was thinking, yeah, there's, and you know, and there's even more in there. That's the weirdest part. But that's pretty robust, I'd say. You're a hard person to uh, codify into because you've done so much. I actually had, there was a studio executive once, brilliant man, just kidding, who said, you know, Rose, the problem with you is that you do different things. If you just did the same thing all the time, Hollywood would know what to do with you. And I just thought, you're in charge of thought going out for the world. Dear God, that's what the problem is, and it's you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So before we get into it, you have not done a ton of interviews recently. No. So I'm curious what made you say yes to this. Well, I like you. Okay. And you're funny. Okay. And I, I like funny, and you know that's the thing that people never get. Like people that are like my deep fans or deep into me, like have always known that I'm. I'm. I mean, I don't know if I'm oddball or what the deal is, but um, that I do have a fairly quick sense of humor, and mm-hmm. I do think most things are really quite hilarious in the abstract. Like I had a therapist once. He's like, "You need to stop making jokes about everything." I'm like, "I'm half Irish, and that's what we do to deal with emotional trauma. We yeah. just make it funny because what the hell is you gonna do?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at times, believe me, it borders on complete absurdity. You're like. <laughs> really? <laughs> I feel that. Uh, I want to start by asking how yeah. you're doing mm-hmm. because I could say that you've had quite a few years mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, but I haven't heard a lot of people ask you how you're doing and yeah. I want to know. That's very kind of you. You know, it's a really, um, there's just so many strange, big, huge things that I deal with that aren't in the normal vernacular. They wonder if people don't ask me how I am because it's so big They or they just don't even think about it. Either way, but thank you for asking me. You know, it's day by day or minute by minute. And generally, I'm a pretty affable, like, happy person. I just deal with a lot of deranged bullshit, like, from a lot of psychotic, powerful people that want me to shut up. But I love that about you, that you don't cower in fear. No, what's the point? I know, it's not you at all. Even saying it right now, it's just not in your DNA. It's just not in my DNA. And it is, I mean, it would be helpful at times, maybe, but I think, I don't know, because for so long in Hollywood, they, like I said, they operate in a real fear basis. They really implanted into you out there, you know? And uh, I was afraid for a very long time. I was really afraid. 
There's a, you know, the Lady Chablis mm-hmm. from back in the day, mm-hmm. like my favorite quote ever is two tears in a bucket, motherfuck it. Love some Lady Chablis. Yes. Rest in peace. I'm a gay person making an explicitly gay podcast, and I want to be respectful towards how you identify. You appeared on Love Alexi's podcast in 2018 and said this, I think we're never going to solve anything by going into the man-woman construct. Step back to humanity, adding that you don't want to be, quote, labeled as a woman when I don't even know what that means. Now, Wikipedia uses this quote as their reference to write that you identify as non-binary, which seems like a mischaracterization of the point you were trying to make. Yes. Uh, so can you clarify, how do you identify? You know, I really don't know. And that's the whole thing is that I know people are a lot more comfortable with labels. I'm in a relationship with this great uh, young woman or woman named Sienna right now, and she's uh, identifies as a lesbian. Um, but I don't identify, I don't know. I, I also have a puppy on my lap right now, people. So if you hear weird sounds, it's not me. Um, you know, it's... Here's the thing about sexuality with me, and I, I don't know if it's because I was a very beautiful young girl. I really was, you know, in a, in a kind of, in the, and we see them now and then, you know, and they're the ones that like, they're kind of like the weak one in the herd that everyone targets, right? And pretty young boys, pretty young girls, it's just how it goes. And I think because I always had so much male attention, it never occurred to me to think about it, to think about whether I wanted to be with men. It just was what you, was done. You know, and it wasn't until much later that I started, I was like, oh, wait a second. Why haven't I given this thought? Yeah. I don't really like this very much. Like there's times like, you know, you just grin and bear it and get like sexual things over with, you know, in a relationship because you're like, well, I'm in a relationship. This is what's supposed to happen. And then later on, as I got older, I was like, wait, why does that have to happen? And then I started really thinking about all the labels and they go so micro. And the thing for me is that I grew up in a very unusual way that set me on a course for being inherently different with most people on yeah. the planet, I would say. Yeah. In terms of how they grew up, mostly in a structured society with labels and things like that. I grew up in a commune where they were trying to recreate utopia for the children. Like, what if all these kids were raised as utopians? What if they had utopian ideals? What if we saw past the micro and went into the macro, the bigger picture of all of it? And that's how I grew up. On that, let's, let's go back to your childhood Kay. for a bit. You had, you know, dare I call it, a very bizarre childhood. I don't know. Uh, I feel like if I lived in Ohio in a white picket fence, I would freak the living fuck out. Fair. And that would be bizarre to me. Fair. Uh, You're a member of the polygamous Children of God sect, Mm -hmm. a cult of which your dad ran the Italian chapter, Mm -hmm. in a 1997 interview magazine profile, which, by the way, the shoot that you did for that profile is like one of my favorite. It's on fire. You know, that was only supposed to be one little picture and one little paragraph. Oh, interesting. But it, but it was Ellen Von Unworth, who's an incredible photographer, and I did a, this great shoot with her, and it wound up just going on and on, and then we wound up doing, like, the major interview. That's so good. Interview. Yeah. So in the interview, you said, I have no memory of my parents almost until we got out of it. Yeah. So what sort of are the memories that you do have? I have more memories of my father in it than I do of my mom, but that's because they called all the women nannies. So if I say, like, oh, I had a nanny, people are like, oh, you grew up privileged. I'm like, not quite that nanny. A different nanny. It was like communal mothering. So there was no like one mother, you know? So that certainly sets up a strange dynamic with your mother for later in life, of course. You know, and that's one of the stranger relationships in my life, I would say. Here's the thing. There was a duke that was in the group. So I grew up on ducal estates in Tuscany. So when people are like, I feel so bad for how you lived, I'm like, where'd you live? Right? I was Tuscany and at least I got beauty. And at least I had had amazing food and I had... 
I had a different way of thinking. And when I got sent to America, I went to, you know, military base. It's the first place I went to school. And that was just like hell, really. And they changed my name from Rosa to Rose the first day of school. I've actually been thinking about changing it back. Hmm. Wouldn't that be interesting? I wonder yeah. if Rosa would have had a softer life. It sounds kind of like a soft name, right? Yeah. Yeah. But um, it, it just like was, and, and I was old enough to see the propaganda they were trying to shovel into my head. And I was not about it. I was like, sorry, fuck off. Not welcome. And that set me at odds pretty much the course of my life. You know, people are like, oh, you just started fighting five years ago with yeah. this stuff. I'm like, no, I've had to, it's pretty much been a day one thing. And it gets exhausting because I'm like, oh, God, wouldn't it be nice to just live and not have to fight? At what point did you realize that the way you were brought up was not normal? All bad. I think when, oh. when I realized it was not all bad. Interesting. Because for so many years, the press especially would be like, oh my God, like she grew up like this or like that. And I'm like, well, yes, weird. But I think cults are many leveled. I think you can be in a family, just a family and be a cult. You know, I mean, I think Hollywood's a cult. DC's a cult. America's a cult. There are many levels. You know? That's such an interesting perspective. Um, I want to go back to relationships for a second. Mm -hmm. So you tweeted in December, I broke up with my ex, uh -huh. referring to Rain Dove, six months ago, and they are still listed as my partner. <laughs> I would like my name to be cleared of any association. To the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, not interested. Not really. You know, I'll just say, like, you know, people come to you when you're down and they might not be the right people. Fair. And do you feel like the relationship that you're in now, I'm sensing, has brought you great uh, happiness? A, a lot more, a lot of comfort and, and happiness. Yeah. yeah. And it's um, it's interesting being, you know, it was hard going out with someone that was non-binary because then you're like, what am I? Mm -hmm. Like, in you're not a girlfriend. Right. I would just say girlfriend because I didn't know what else to say. Right. I, I had no idea what to, like, what are you at that point? Like, I think we just need a new dictionary. Well, I think nomenclature in general, it's, it's just it's so, so binary. Yes. It's so binary, yeah. you know, and you're trying to deal with these nuanced subjects right. with a lot of gray areas, you know, and a lot of learning curves. Yes. You know, when people come at me for stuff, I'm like, yo, I'm a 46-year-old white female. Of course I'm going to fuck up. Yeah. Of course I am. I grew up, well, I've lived on my own since I was 13, and then I lived in pig face Hollywood. You know, I'm pretty good considering, and I try my best. Sometimes I fail. But overall, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good person, I'd say. Yeah. But when people judge me as if, like, I didn't go to some school that was, like, brain-opening. I went to military school, and then I went to other schools, and they were all, like, really horrible. And it was, there was no, it was bullying. It was terrible. There was no awareness of being kind to each other. Right. Let's put it that way. Right. It was, it was like, kill the young gay kid. Yeah. And I was always protecting them, and I was always in fights, but verbal, because I, I could slice you with my words. Yeah. And I would tell that bully, I was like, I'll give you a choice. You can either beat up this poor little kid, or I will destroy you in front of everybody here, and any good feeling you've ever had about yourself will go away right away. It's up to you. I fucking grumbled. I was like 11, and they just like... <laughs> And another time when I was like 11, these girls were yelling at me in the hallway and I just always could sail through and not even look at them. And they were just shouting things at me. And one girl behind me, I heard her go, how does she do that? Meaning, how does she ignore us like that? And I was like, it's simple. You don't exist in my reality. Pew, mind blown of 11 year old. <laughs> but it was really, I was like, you don't exist in my, like people like you are just like, it's like that survivor show, Outwit and Outlast. You're mm -hmm. like, I just have to survive you. And it yeah. sucks because who wants to survive? But you know, that's yeah, what it is. They have to. Let's... Take a break. And we're back with Rose McGowan. So let's talk about some of your acting work. Okay. You've spent your entire adult life as a working actress yeah. and a famous person, having starred in your first film in 1992 at the age of 19. I am fascinated. Am I right? No? Mm, Encino no. Man? Oh, yeah. No, I was 16 then. 16. I was 16. 
And I did, uh, like, and I hated it. And I went back to Seattle after that. I was like, oh, I hate these Hollywood people. They're gross. Like, shortly thereafter, I went back to L.A. But various things happened. And I wound up getting discovered on the street corner when I was a little older, yeah. Wow. By uh, Greg Araki, the director of Doom Generation's Best Friend. I love that movie so much. It's I love badass. Greg's work. Yeah. That movie is badass. Mm-hmm. The Doom Generation did not receive the reverence as seminal queer cinema that I think it deserves. What was your reaction when you first read that script? Well, the thing that was funny about it was that for being such an advanced kid, living on my own from so young and doing all that, I had like not much knowledge of slang that was sexual. So I thought Greg Araki had invented a made-up language. I didn't realize a lot of them were like, Sex jokes. I had no idea until, like, I swear to God, like, 12 years ago, I did the DVD commentary, and I'm like, oh, I said, what? Like, I was so shocked, and it was so funny, because after I did that movie, I had so many people coming up to me, you're so brave, and I'm like, thank you. I didn't really understand the full, like, how brave I was, but I can honestly say it was just ignorance and not really knowing the slang words for sex. Look, just make my breath. I don't know who the fuck you think I am. Will you just do me a favor and evacuate? Sit and spin. He was an anus face. Eat my fuck. You're like a life support system for a cock. There's a three-way scene. I remember in real oh, life I'm wearing like, yeah, I'm wearing like, I think I was wearing slippers and like blue. And I was just laughing. I just thought it was like three of us rolling around on the bed. Until I did the DVD commentary, I was like, oh, that means they're both in me at the same time. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> No wonder everyone thought I was so brave. And my dad chased Greg Araki down an alley in Seattle, Washington, after it played at a film festival there, Seattle Film Festival, and like chased after him trying to beat him up and didn't talk to me for like two years afterwards. He was like, congratulations being a whore. My dad could be a total asshole. Wow. Yeah, that was heavy. But I'm still very proud of that role, very proud of that movie, even if I didn't know what the fuck I was doing or what I was saying. Like I said, I just let, my approach was like, well, since it's all invented dialogue, I'll just have to make it sound supernatural to my mouth yeah. and the way I deliver it. And I think I did a good job with it. I think you did a great and job with it. And the guys that. were great. They were great. Very sexy. Mm-hmm. I also think that making that sort of dialogue, making it sound natural was a skill that you use once again in Jawbreaker. Because yeah. similarly, that dialogue, it's elevated, you know? It's elevated, very arch, very witty. And, and quite, with Jawbreaker, it was quite, like to me, it resonated with old Hollywood movies. Yeah. More than anything, yeah. you know? And, and I based that character on a classic film from 1939 called Leave Her to Heaven. It was either 39 or 44. Might have been 44. But it was called Leave Her to Heaven, and there's this character played by the beautiful Jean Tierney, and she marries this guy who was a nine-year-old kid named Timmy in a wheelchair. She starts getting rid of everyone in her new husband's life. That would be a competition for attention, eventually pushing Timmy off the cliff. And he's like, darling, why? Darling, we needed more time alone together. What's the big deal? I mean, that was completely the origin of Courtney for me. Because a sociopath is not aware they're a sociopath. Right. Love Courtney. I still, like, I've talked to Darren Stein about doing a part two that I think would be so easy and genius. Here's my pitch. I think it's a great idea, but he's not falling for it. But okay. Uh, I think Courtney comes out of a mental institution. She finds Julie Benz, you know, Marcy, and the other girls living in Calabasas. Right. Uh, (laughs) Next to the Kardashians. And she comes out and like, it's all like these PTA moms and she just like ruins, like just terrorizes them with like either a vendetta or it's just like trying to get back into the social structure. But now it's all changed because they're older and weird. Right. 
I just think like her coming out of a mental institution would be the way to go. Absolutely. Beyond. I do like every 20 years do an update of mm-hmm. Courtney. Where's Courtney now? Yeah. That would be kind of genius. Wow. We need that. Darren. Come on, Darren. Like, uh, let's talk Scream. Yeah. I love Scream. So do I. Scream came two years after Wes Craven's new nightmare. How familiar were you with Wes's work and his overarching approach to the horror genre? None. Mm. We were taken to like classic films growing up, like revival cinemas, probably because I had so many brothers and sisters and it was cheaper, but it was also just because my parents, we like classic, we were weird. When I was 12, I was like, no way, Lawrence of Arabia re-released on 70 millimeter with an intermission. You know, I was super stoked. But consequently, I didn't really see a lot of modern films and especially horror because it just scares the fuck out of me. Yeah, It just like terrifies me. It really, like I can't watch it. And I don't know if that's because I have enough PTSD in my own life to, you know, jump scares, things like that, or just excitements that I don't really need. I have quite enough excitement, thank you. Um, But I wasn't. And I had to make a joke about, in in Scream, like, what? It's like some Wes Carpenter flick where I'm obviously mixing up John Carpenter and Wes Craven, but I didn't even know I was doing that. I was playing a dumb blonde, and to some extent, you know, not a dumb blonde. She was great, actually, I think. Yeah, she was pretty great. Yeah. There's a scene on the porch, and I'm just talking to Sydney, and I remember Kevin Williamson, who wrote it, came up to me afterwards, and he's like, oh, so I just wrote that as a transitional scene, like a throwaway scene, but now it's like one of my favorites because of how you guys played it in that scene. And my goal was like, I clearly knew that the big busted girl in these movies dies, but I was like, I'm not going down without a fight. And also, more importantly, the audience is going to remember me. Yeah. They're going to be like, feel sad when I die. Yeah. I don't want to be just another disposable girl. I refuse. You weren't. Oh, you want to play psycho killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Cut, Casper. That's a wrap. I love Tatum. When you first read the script, because that opening to that movie is so iconic, mm-hmm. but I imagine on paper... Mm-mm, we didn't know, see the script. You did it. They only gave us the scenes we were in. Oh, my God. Did you know who the killer was? Or maybe they gave us a script, but it didn't have that part. I didn't, yeah. It wasn't like a... Because it was a really hot property at that time, mm-hmm. you know, in, in town. And I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure I didn't read the entire script. How, what was your relationship like with Nev and Great. David and Courtney? And what was the general vibe like on that set? Oh, my God. It was like we had so much fun. David Arquette and I would chase like uh, prom cars. We would look for people having parties because we were in such a small town. And we would follow them home and crash their prom parties. And like, and then Nev was incredibly sweet. Always very, very sweet and kind. She's very Canadian. Everybody was great. And they were just hilarious. David is hysterical, of course. It was like a camp. It was like a summer camp. You know what I mean? Yeah. But with death. Yeah, yeah. You know. Happens. Happens. Thoughts on Scream 2? Never saw it. Never saw it? No. Or any of the other ones? Any interest? No. <laughs> Not, I have nothing against it. It just didn't occur to me to see. It literally just didn't even occur to me. Thoughts on Courtney Cox's bangs in Scream 3? Are you aware of them? Were they up or down? They're down. They're very specific. It's they're very... different than the earlier game. Oh, yeah. What's they're, the difference? Um, because they're so... Were they kind of orange? No, they're like... That's uh, Scream that's 2. Scream. Okay. <laughs> Um, she has you know your bangs yeah well it's like it feels very queer to me but she has these like iconic bangs that whenever I think of bad bangs um, that's what you think of yeah so it's like 
Oh, no. Yeah, I can't believe you've never seen this. I've wow. never seen that. Who wow. would do that to her? Yeah. Oh, dear. Really good film, though. I love the whole I love the whole series so much. Um, when was the last time you saw Scream? I've probably only just seen, like, clips of it, I think. So maybe when it came out. I just watched it, and it holds it up. It holds up. So Yay. well. Well, I think that's the thing. When you make a classic, when you make something that's just kind of for the ages, and, and I think that's what everybody's intention should be when creating something and crafting something. Yeah. You know? I remember there was, um at the premiere, they had a fortune teller, and she had a quote in the LA Times the next day. She said, this movie's going to go puff at the box office. And I was like, ha, 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 yeah. sucker. Yeah. And I really... uh I love Tatum as a character because similarly to what you're saying, I never actually saw her as a dumb blonde at all. Yeah. I actually think of her as like a precursor to Buffy in so many ways just mm. because she was like getting shit done. And I remember, interestingly to what you say, I felt an emotional investment that when she died, I was like, fuck this fucking killer. Good. Yeah, we need to get him. Um, that was exactly what you were supposed to yeah. do. Yeah. Now, you've told me about this before, but the costumes, yeah. I believe, were your own. Well, what happened was... What had happened was, was the, uh, <laughs> I didn't really like the costume designer that much on that. She was trying to put me in these white chunky tennis shoes that sound kind of okay now, but they really weren't. And, uh, and I was like, she's like, they're very now. And I remember being like, they're very never. And I, <laughs> I was such a bitch. And so I went like the night before filming, I went out and bought, and you have to buy four outfits. I had to buy them for the stunt person as well as me. So I was at the mall and I found that skirt with the swirl and I knew the camera was going to go on my butt. And I was like, ha ha. It was just my way of like, you know, middle finger just being funny because I like layering weird shit and things. Mm -hmm. I've always done that. Going back to Jawbreaker. When I think of cult classics, you know, and really like the epitome of a cult classic, I think of Jawbreaker. Speaking about movies that hold up, Jawbreaker is so fun in that you can show someone the trailer to the film and they'll immediately be transported into the specificity of the world. Let's face it, he was born to be prom king. What he does after prom is his problem. He could get married, catch Little League, I could give a shit. <laughs> He's a yearbook photo, a letterman's jacket, a piece of nostalgia that probably won't even stand the test of time. Courtney Shane really is the successor to Heather Chandler from the film Heathers for me. Right. That's my interpretation. Um, what do you love most about that film with regards to how it stood the test of time? Well, I think Darren Stein just made a hell of a film and there's so many odds stacked against us and him at that time, you know, probably the number one part of it that he was queer, right? In Hollywood and yeah. out and, and very, you know, out. Like, I remember when it came down to the wire, when it was being released, they were trying to decide the studio, should we put all our money behind Can't Hardly Wait or Jawbreaker? And it was can't, they chose Can't Hardly Wait, which I, I haven't seen, but I don't think it probably holds up as well, I'm going to say, yeah, is my guess. So. I think they bet on the wrong horse. But ultimately, you know, sometimes being disliked at first makes you really liked in the long run. And the people that need to find you will find you. It's like with my book, you know, it's like, I mean, it was a bestseller, it's a bestseller, but I, I still find that like with Brave, like the people that need to find these movies, that young queer kid that needs to find Jawbreaker will find it. Yeah. Why do you think it is, you know, I've been talking about this with so many people lately about why gay men connect to strong female characters. And I think Courtney is a great example of that. What do you think it is about characters like Courtney that elicits some kind of response from gay men? Hmm. I think it's just like... I was with a friend of mine the other night who, you know, happens to be gay, and he was saying, there was a woman that sat down, and she was such a bitch. And he was like, God, I love her. 
<laughs> yeah. And I was like, what a bitch. She's like, I love her. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but it's totally true. But that resonates with me yeah. so much. Like, yes, I'm fearful of her. Therefore, I, I love, love her. her. Yeah. He's no. Like, I love her. I, I, I get that. Uh, let's talk for a minute about Death Proof. Okay. Love that film so very much. I love the underlying message of that film. What do you feel like that is? I feel like it's all of these women at the end ganging up and saying to this oppressor, not only are we going to kill you, but we're going to have fun killing you. The fun that you had at our expense, we are then going to flip the script on you. And we're not only going to kill you, but like this is going to be just an all out destruction. When they're all around the body and just kicking him. Yeah, that's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah, Zoe Bell's amazing. That Rosario Dawson is incredible. Oh my God. Um, Your character, Pam, has quite the death in that film. And I'm just sort of wondering how the negotiations around that role came to you and what made you want to be a part of that film. Well, you know, I had to audition for it, even though I was already in Cast in Planet Terror, which was the other half. It was a double feature, so it was called Grindhouse. And in the 70s, and that's what Tarantino and Rodriguez were referencing, was in the 70s they used to do double features, so two movies at the same time for the price of one. And that's what they were kind of offering with this. And I knew I was in Planet Terror, and in Planet Terror I wanted to look more Italian, so I got kind of like a dark spray tan. And I used, from uh, All My Queens That Do Drag, I got a Sally Hansen leg spray, which is big, you know, for, for, and uh, I like, I think, I'm sure I'll get some horrible disease from inhaling orange leg spray. But that was what I was painted with in, you know, day in, day out with that stuff. I wanted, conversely, in Death Proof to look very angelic. It was a $50,000 Norwegian wig. Wow. It was like flaxen, beautiful white hair. It was so soft. And I had to spray paint my hair yellow underneath it because the dark would show through because I had really long dark hair then. I just wanted to make her look so angelic that once again, when she died this horrible death, you felt really bad for her because... I don't think Tarantino cares, like, if you die and and it's just a death, you know? I was like, no, it's not going to happen like this. Not on my watch. Not another disposable female. Do you talk to Quentin? No. You know, I don't hate Quentin. I just think he's just not my cup of tea. He just needs a lot of attention, and I don't have that much attention to give. Yeah. What's your response to seeing this moment with him and seeing him on all these award shows and sort of doing the award circuit and getting all of this these accolades for his latest film? Well, I haven't seen the latest film. Maybe it's great. I don't know. Probably. Who knows? Um, I think Hollywood all... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Always loves a cult leader. Mm. They need they they need their they need and uh, and in the absence of Weinstein, they'll they'll take what's next. He's not like, by the way, I'm not comparing him in any way to that behind the scenes or anything like that. That's not what I'm doing. I just think they they need a 
a big unusual figure as their as their as their mascot almost in a weird way yeah you know so charmed comes along yeah done three seasons shannon's exited the show you're coming on to this hit show on the wb iconic network (laughs) miss it um (laughs) you know and this is the heyday we're talking this is buffy this is dawson's creek charmed it's just like the best programming chainmail top from my club days steel-toed boots from my mosh pit days handcuffs from last friday you come on a hit show. Yeah. You're replacing a beloved actress and a beloved character. I've never done TV, really. You've never done no. TV. You go on to do 122 episodes. Did you realize that you were going to be making a five-year commitment? Yes and no. I had a lawyer that advised me. He's like, just sign the five-year contract. It'll never go that long. Because almost no shows survive massive cast changes. They yeah. just don't. And so everybody was like, we're just trying to get at least one more season. They only wanted me to get to five years, their five years, yeah. they're on for three, because that's when residuals kick in, right? So that's what they're desperate to try to carry on to. And then I kind of made the ratings go up, and then they yeah, you did. then they locked me into the five-year. And I was like, ah, here I am. But it was, it was just, you know, hour-longs are the hardest job in show business because you're doing half a movie in eight days. Right. You know, it was like 10 pages of dialogue a day. And, like, I kind of just lost – I just got so lost during that filming. But I love Paige, and I love that people love her yeah. because that was my job, you know. And it means, like, by so many people loving her in that show and, and the other characters, of course – you know, and, and feeling like we were part of their family or made us their family, yeah. you know, like that's a huge honor. And a lot of people are like, oh, you didn't have the best time doing it. I'm like, doesn't matter. Did you have a good time watching it? That's what counts. Because I used to always get asked when I was doing the show by the press, like, so do you girls hang out after work? I'm like, what? I work 12 to 17 hours a day. I go to right. sleep and I come back. There is no after work. I feel like that question only typically gets women. asked towards women. Oh, uh, have you ever been, like, do you guys hang out after work? Right. Like, I'm like, what do you care? Yeah. No, it's, it's their way of saying, like, so is there friction? Yeah. Because they wanted to stir that up because that had been the thing with Shannon. So they're trying to always, and I just refuse. I was right. like, I'm not playing again. Right. What was it like for you uh, being on a show and having that paycheck that comes from television? I imagine quality of life-wise, to be on a hit television series and to be receiving that regular income flow versus a film paycheck yeah, had to have been difference. different. Huge difference. But it's also like the golden handcuffs, you know? Mm. Yes, you you have all that you also have no life so mm. it's up to you what you value more and at the end of the day i clearly haven't gone back to doing another long tv show so yeah yeah uh, i kind of value my life and also but for me like you know on on that show it was hard because on film there's always like the weirdo artists you know like in the art department or this or that and then this uh, tv is a lot more of just a corporation in a lot of ways you know and, and so it's more about a corporate mentality behind the scenes and that bothered me like when the heads of it like i'm like it's great it could be even better but they just, it was good enough yeah and i just you know i was i was starving for like artistic anything and um it was just more that it was just an imbalanced life but fuck we achieved a lot we achieved a solid place in history longest running female tv show in history unless we've been supplanted and i don't know uh, possibly, but last I heard, damn, we did good. Yeah. You know, we did good. And no one, we were on Sunday night by ourselves. We had nothing before us, really, and nothing after us. And so it was like appointment TV. It wasn't like you're just all of a sudden there's a great hit show. Most shows that were hits have hit shows around them. Yeah. We never had anything. And so considering, like, and also because the network, WB, didn't create the show in-house, they kind of treated us like the ugly stepchild at the time. And they wouldn't give us, like, money for press and money for this and money for that. But they would sink it all into their other shows. And But we just kept on doing our thing. And, like, screw you. People love us and we love people. Yeah. 
122 episodes later. Dear God. Uh, <laughs> on that note, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. If you enjoyed what you just heard, I have some good news for you. There are extended interviews with our talent available on our Patreon at patreon.com backslash shutupevan. For those of you that aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a way for myself, my producer Alden, to make a little bit of coin off of this podcast. That support will allow us to continue to make more episodes. So if you liked what you heard and want to support what we're doing and the continued effort to keep doing it, please consider subscribing to our Patreon today. And we are back. I'm fascinated by the 90s. I just think it's my favorite time in pop culture. What was it like being famous in the 90s? It was actually really fun. I mean, until something bad happened to me. Before that, it was really fun. After that, everything kind of became kind of a farce to me. But, uh, you know, smiling on a red carpet, things like that. But it was fun because you could go do weird stuff and no one was reporting on you. And then by the year 2000, that had all changed. Like the gossip columns and like... And then also... You know, what happened to me personally was after being sexually assaulted, uh, my rapist hired, but he would pay off editors, like, of Vanity Fair, of this and that. Like, anytime you see this person's name come up, just slander them. And he would buy their rights to their stories he'd written and give them a hit list, right? This is all in Ronan Farrow's book and his exposés, but I already knew about it. I'd heard about it, but I couldn't prove it, mm-hmm. right? But I would go, and then I would so I would go to a premiere, and I would just get savaged. And I'm like, what did I ever do to these people? I could not figure it out. And why, like, I would be shooting Charmed, and the New York Post would be like, Rose McGowan was on top of a bar in a strip-off with Christina Aguilera last night at Hogs and Heifers. And I was like, what? And it was gleeful. That's how I was always treated by the press, you see. She wore a short skirt. She deserved it. Was there a time before that? That it was fun? When it was fun? Yeah. It was fun until... Uh, well, until, I mean, I had 1997. It was fun until then. And then I had a long run of not so much fun. But I made happiness wherever I could go, of course, you know, and I had fun in my own private life, but not so much in Hollywood, no. It would have been iconic if you danced on a bar with Christina Aguilera, I must say. It would have been. I sucked person. up one time, a long time ago. I was in a recording studio and she was singing. I didn't realize, like, Obviously, she's an incredible perfectionist, and she has an insane voice. I mean, we all know this. Yeah. Please. It's, it's like out of control. But I'm in there with a hairdresser friend of hers that took me, and I heard her voice crack on this one take, and it was so beautiful, and it was so emotional sounding. I was like, oh, my God, when your voice cracked, that was so gorgeous. And she became, like, it was like this wall passed over. Oh, yeah, I'm imperfect. And I, I don't know. Either that or she just hated me, one of the two. But it could have been that I stuck my foot in my mouth. That's my Christina story, but it didn't involve stripping. Who in the 90s was a famous person who you hung out with and had a good-ass time? Well, that would be back then. It would be Marilyn Manson. Yeah, we had a good-ass time. And I, and I, and I went out I'm with shaking. Him. You know, he, he changed a lot after we broke up. And, and, like, since I broke up with him, he's pretty much stayed on hating me ever since, which is so weird to me when men do that. It's like get over it jesus but uh for me it was like after being assaulted i was like oh i just wanted to feel young again and i'd worked for so long in my life you know my first job was at a funeral home when i was 14 i just worked to support myself and um because i had no other support and i just wanted to run away at the circus and i did and we had wild really fun times until you know the circus eventually has to end because you brought up Marilyn, i want to talk about the vma dress Mm -hmm. I'm shaking just at the opportunity to like talk about this with you because 
There are iconic fashion moments and there are iconic fashion moments. Ooh, I've never heard that. And every time I'm ever asked to write a roundup of any kind of red carpet, you are like that moment. You shook the table. Can you talk about that look and how that came together? Yeah. Well, I had a couple things going through my mind. One, it was my first red carpet appearance after being sexually assaulted. And I was really disgusted with Hollywood and media and photographers and all that. And I, I kind of started thinking, I was like, they really just want to see you fucking naked, basically. Because I was trying to say, like, turn around, let me get your face. And then I was also thinking, I'm going with Marilyn Manson. I got to win. How am I going to win? I need to make a statement that I might be the only one knowing what statement this is. But if you ever look back at those photos, they're not done with like a hand on the hip to be sexy ever. And that's what every every girl, which is very kind when, you know, you know, there's copies of it that kind of or versions of it that yeah. have gone around through the years. And and that's awesome. But they they've one thing I've noticed is they all do it to be sexy. Mm-hmm. Like even if it's on Halloween, it's always a sexual like kind of a sexy thing. And mine was like, I think that's one of the reasons it rocked people so much because it wasn't a sexual pose. And they were like literally like their brains back then. If you want to talk slut shaming globally. Oh, my God. Mm. I was not prepared for that. I mean, to go viral in mass media globally at that point without the internet was quite something. Right. Right. And uh, I was like, what did I do? (laughs) Who designed that dress? It was a designer back then called Maya, and I stupidly gave it back. You did? What an idiot. (sighs) (sighs) And I never to be seen again. That dress must be worth so much money if it does exist. When was the last time you talked to Marilyn? I think I ran into him like three or four years ago, yeah. But not a, you wouldn't say you have any kind of friendship? No. Fair. Throughout your life, what people that would you say that we know have been the most loyal friends to you? That you know? Yeah. God, I don't know. I are don't... there well, are there famous people that have... No. no. No, no, no. I've never really liked famous people, I'll be really honest with you. They're not usually my cup of tea. I mean, it depends on what the fame is for. Like, I tend to be more friends with people in the art world, unless they're a douchebag, of course. Hollywood is a very specific, you know, I think actors are quite different in New York than they are from L.A. kind of actors. And a lot of it there is based on just wanting to be famous. Right. Because I was discovered, I never had that huge thing in me that was like, I must be famous and live this life. I was always kind of grossed out by it. The things that were important to them did not matter to me in any way. So it was like a language I couldn't speak with a lot of actors that I worked with. I get along with everybody just fine. But it was in terms of a meeting of the minds, not so much. I think for so many people, it seems like they're chasing fame. And so much of your story feels like it, fame was chasing you. Yeah. At least that's my perception. <laughs> no, that's quite right. Um, so now I want to uh, get into like the last topic, which okay. is the internet and sort of a big theme within this podcast. You are considered by many to be quite a controversial figure. Mm-hmm. I love that about you. Yeah, fuck it. How do you characterize your public persona? I would say it's different in different countries. Mm. America very specifically has been manipulated. The press has been manipulated to drag me for the last 22 years. You know, so um, people here, I think, understandably have a bit, unless they've been deep into me for a long time, confused. And also weird because they're not used to seeing a woman who's pissed off. It doesn't happen really. And no one breaks ranks from Hollywood. You know, who, who really, other than me and now all the others that have come forward so bravely have done that, really. They've tried. It just never worked. Mm-hmm. And people would skewer Hollywood and things like that, but not so much. And so the internet, you know, how I, I, I don't know. I think I'm confusing to a lot of people. I can understand that. But I would also say look a little deeper. The thing that is lame, I think, about 
that is that people don't ever assume there might be feelings or trauma attached to how you behave or how you think. I know men in power. I know them like the back mm. of my hand. I know them. I've been dealing with these fuckers for a long, long time. And one of the things is like, why should I die for Donald Trump's dumb little dick wrapped around my neck? No, thank you. I'm not going to do that. I'll do everything I can to live. And that might be perceived as somewhat crazy to people, but I don't really care because I can do weird things like make the cover of the paper and run. Yeah. I love your sense of humor so much. <laughs> when I texted you saying I was excited about this interview, you responded, hashtag me too, <laughs> which I bring that up because I think it epitomizes a humor that you possess that many people either don't know about or yeah. don't see. How would you describe your sense of humor? Slightly perverse. I don't know. Um, like I was at a wedding and this guy passed out in front of me, but he was the groomsman. And it was just so fun. I couldn't help, you know, you just start laughing. And everyone's freaking out and shrieking. And I'm just sitting there like my head's like, I'm like, oh, this is I'm terrible. You're terrible, Muriel. And I'm like, oh, you're terrible. And my friends say that to me all the time. Uh, or I would make horrible jokes growing up. My sister's like, you are your father's daughter. Who makes you laugh these days? I just watched Leslie Jones. She was really funny. I like that. She's great. Yeah. Uh, who makes me laugh? Who makes you laugh right now? Oh my God. Uh, Nikki Glaser makes me laugh a lot. I have to check her out. Um, I love her. Who makes me laugh? Bowen Yang. He's one of the new cast members on SNL. Um, I really like, Instagram is a big source of humor for me. Um, Like meme humor? I love meme humor. Very much. A smart meme humor. Right. A lot of times the people that make me laugh are like random Twitter people that I don't I don't know and you, right. know, you know There's a lot of funny people out there. There are a lot of really funny people. And I really like people that are able to find humor in things that other people don't find yeah. humor from. I remember like one of the last red carpets I went down, it was really funny. Um like Entertainment Tonight did their whole like they took their camera, of course, and they panned up and down, you know my body and they said uh, right after the Kate Blanchett doesn't like it when we do that what do you think I said I think you're visual rapist have a nice day <laughs> bye bye and they're like <laughs> oh my god I'm like what you're not making the dude turn around no piss off but that's another reason why I sort of love using my Instagram to thirst over men in the yeah. way that I have seen, seen women being thirsted over yeah. yeah and so it's interesting because like when I see those guys on the red carpet, you know, when I see they David... They never get as much attention either, do they? They the do from me. Well, they do from um, me. But, like, when I see David Beckham in a pair of tight pants... Yeah, I saw like, that one on your Instagram. Yeah. I was like, yeah, respect. Wanna, David yeah. Beckham, respect. Honestly, I want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> let's talk about, in the vein of memes, mm-hmm. a lot of very serious moments from interviews you've done over the past two years have sort of had an afterlife as memes. Two in particular that come to mind for me are you saying, we got you. And imagine how tired we are. How do you feel about people taking very serious moments from your life and repurposing them for humorous fodder? It's very strange, you know? It's, um, sometimes I see things that make me laugh. Uh, It's weird when it says Harvey Weinstein victim and then uh, that's on the meme. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, uh, it's it's kind of cruel. It's cruel. But it's funny, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's both. So it's like cruel because it's me, but funny if I it's not me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you, In the abstract, it's funny. In the personal, it's kind of like, that's fucked up. If you really break it down, it's yeah. fucked up. Are you ever scrolling through Twitter and see yourself memed? 
No, someone had to send me. I had no idea. That thing that, imagine how tired we are. I had no idea. Like, no clue. Yeah. And someone showed it to me, and I was like, huh? And it had already been around for, like, quite a long time. I had no idea. Yeah. Because I, I don't really hunt for myself online because I, you know, have a life. Yeah. Ryan Houlihan, a, com- a comedian on Twitter, he tweeted about this saying that have all the things in the world that you could make reaction memes out of, using footage of a woman discussing their emotional trauma in reaction to rape is probably not necessary. I'll also point out now that gay men seem to be the ones that use it the most. Ryan, thank you, because I really appreciate you thinking about it that way and breaking it down for people, because it's true, it is true. But, you know, I don't want to sound like just some downer or something. So like, I like memes, I think they're funny, and I do and am quite quotable often. I understand that. You and are. sometimes when I say things a certain way, and if I'm talking to a journalist that I don't like, you can really tell. And it comes out just like, I remember one time when someone asked me about somebody if I liked them, and I'm like, I don't. I thought that was quite good. Yeah. <laughs> you have another one um, from the Mike interview that we did in 2016. It was like right after Trump was elected. And you say, um, that's the fuck of it all. That's the fuck of it all. And I love that quote. Um, I want to ask you about a tweet that you deleted. Oh, which If you're one? comfortable talking about it from several weeks ago. I think you were referencing. Was it the Iran one? It's in that same. It's one of the ones that came in that package. Mm-hmm. You said. Oh, the Republican thing. Yeah. It was a bet. I couldn't say that on Twitter. Okay, wait, let me read the, the tweet okay, and tell sorry. me more. So you said, I'm a registered Republican in California. I loathe the Clintons. I hate Trump. I will not vote Republican, but I cannot vote Democrat. I'd rather know what evil I'm getting, so I'll go Republican. This is about World War III, so none of that shit matters anymore. True. Now, the behind-the-scenes story is that I, why at this point in time in my life, I decided to do this and take this bet uh, from a brother of mine who said, I dare you to be a Republican for three months. And I thought about it, and he said, I'll bet you $200 that you can. I thought, I'll bet you $200 I can. And then when I tweeted that thing about Iran, like all these Republicans were like, libtard, you know that. And I, I was like, what would happen to their brains if I told them I was a Republican at this point? But, you know, granted, late night ideas aren't always the best. But in my mind at that time, I was like, ooh, I'm just going to blow their, I'll be like, I'm a Republican. What are you going to say to me now? Am I still a snowflake? Am I still a libtard? Idiot. You know what I mean? But they, they, they didn't really sway them too much if i was a dixie chick they'd be burning my cds for sure fuckers and uh and uh yeah you know i deleted it because i was just kind of going through and i was like eh, fuck it i didn't care but uh my experience is done but it is a really weird fucking thing to be a republican for three months it feels strange in your body it feels very cellular it's uh, it's a very weird thing do i want america to burn down and start over pardon me absolutely do I wish it the best on the other hand? Yes. You know, my first paper in America, I got an F on at the military school. Not shocking. The question was kind of like, what makes America so great? And I remember thinking, meh. And I wrote, because I'd studied America before I came over, and I said, well, you committed genocide for your land, and you built yourself up off the back of slaves. Frankly, I think you can be better, and you're not ready to call yourself great. Yeah. And I stand by that. Yeah. And I can't stand Hillary Clinton. She, her whole thing like this a couple days ago, I didn't know anything about Harvey Weinstein. Fuck you. Fuck you and your husband on Lolita Express, Jeffrey Epstein's plane 25 times. And David Boyce, your lawyer, who's Weinstein's lawyer and Clinton's lawyer, is now representing the Epstein victims. Most likely, my guess is just my theory is so he can get his hands on what the government has on all his buddies. And he's the one who passed gay marriage to the United States. I'm fucking with the people, and I'm suing him right now. So this is like, I'm fucking with the people, the biggest, most powerful people in the world. And they fuck back. So to clarify from that tweet. Am I still a Republican? No. Okay. 
the bet is over. Okay. But I, he's like, you have to say it out loud. And so, of course, I idiot. You I could have just sent it to a friend, but Twitter. I know I confuse people. And I was like, understandable. You know, you say you're probably going to go back to London. But if you were to vote in the 2020 election, who? I have no idea. But it's really hard. I'm not Republican. No. Okay. Good God, no. <laughs> I would never vote Republican. Is no, there a particular candidate, though, who's... Um, I hope so. Um, I've had a, a couple text conversations with Andrew Yang, like on Twitter, just thanking me for support of his wife, you know, who came out with a horrible story, things like that. And he told me I should vote for him, so I have to dig deeper. I'm so now, because of I used to be such a Hillary supporter growing up and a Bill supporter, and then just growing up and seeing and knowing what I know from behind the scenes and how evil it is and how dark it is, I have a very hard time. You know, I mean, Obama's daughter interned for my rapist. Come on. And when I met Obama, he wouldn't look me in the eyes. He looked everywhere but then. And the only thing he said to me, it was like three months after the news broke and it was popping off. And this is in India. And the only thing he said to me, not like, keep going, I'm sorry, or, you know, good job women out there in the world. I don't know, whatever you would say. He said, you sure know how to pose for the cameras. So I just turned and I said, Mr. President, you're the one with the personal photographer. And then his speechwriter, whom I used to know, texted me right after. He's like, what did you think of my boss? And I said, human to human, your boss is a fail. Mm-hmm. And I hate that. Believe me, I went after that, I went into a bathroom and cried. He was very disappointed and very hurt. You know, I mean, and when I make pronouncements, like, I think he's a fail in that way, you know, it's a bummer. And people are like, fuck you, Rose, because they would rather yell at me than maybe look at somebody who's not perfect. A couple last questions. I want to talk about you taking on other people's trauma. Mm. I interviewed uh, one of the RuPaul's Drag Race contestants several years ago who had been sexually assaulted Mm. in his youth. And he mentioned to me in a subsequent interview that we did that when fans approach him now at all of the Drag Race conventions, they will say, I too experienced this. I too experienced this. And he mentioned, this is Blair St. Clair, that that was very overwhelming for him, this idea and the comfort that people had in sharing their experience all because he too had an experience. I think if he was experiencing that on a micro level, I can only imagine. So what's your experience been like of people Mm. sort of seeing you as connecting with you over something that you might not see any kind of connection with them over or desire to have a connection vis-a-vis that experience? You know, for a while, I felt like I was like this massive receptacle for people's pain. It was incredibly hard. Like, whoa. Like, I still get them, but the the onslaught for a while was just like, and these people have just been through hell, hell, hell. And, And like the amount of pain that shared with me, I'm like, oh my God. And I'm sure with anyone who's come forward, you know, it's because so many people push it so far down. They push it so far down. And I have to realize that I'm, it's not about me. Yeah, It hurts. It's a lot to take. It's a lot to shoulder, but it's not about me. And at this point in time, I am being of service to someone. Yeah. Have you developed any kind of skills with regard to when someone in a, in a random occasion comes to you and, and dumps something like that on you? Um, any kind of skill set in order to be able to... Not have it in me. Yeah. Not really. Mm. Mm. Not really. Um, I was with someone earlier today who was crying, so I started crying. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I can't separate that much. But boy, some of these stories would just blow your brain up. Yeah. And it's just, it's wild. And, and that everybody was just like, yeah, it's just not, you know, no one talks about this. And, and that's the thing is if people just realize it's not their shame, 
you know, I see myself as just this kind of, frankly, this lifetime so far has been kind of being of service to others. That's how I was raised. We were always volunteering. And and, um, and I kind of looked at that with like acting in a big way. You know, yeah. it was like this brings happiness to people or tears or yeah. laughter or whatever. It Elicits gives them something. Emotion. It elicits emotion. Yeah. I'm engaging with people and yeah. I want to talk to them, you know. Yeah. Um, but ultimately just having other people's words in my mouth became too much for my brain. Hmm. Social media. Mm. You have a complex relationship with social media, to put it simply. Uh, do you enjoy social media? No. I kind of wish it didn't exist, but at the same time, if it didn't exist, I wouldn't have been able to do what I did. And people wouldn't be able to, like whistleblowers of all, in all like walks of life, wouldn't be able to, and it'd be a lot harder. It's just a brutal battleground. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not fun. Instagram is the one I kind of like the least. Well, hmm. Facebook, no, I didn't think about yeah, that yeah. really. But like Instagram, I, I I like it the least just because it's, to me it's like the most pressure. Twitter, I'm usually like, oh shit, what did I just do? Oops. Um, because <laughs> I'll read it, I'll look at it and be like, Rose, don't get mad. Don't. I'm like, oh. And then I'm like firing off some tweet. I'm like, girl, like, and everyone's like, well, take a beat and just text me first. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. I just instantly get like triggered. I'm like, but I'll usually be- when people think I'm tweeting, they think I'm all like, or mad, or they, th- they think I'm, like, a lot of times when people read my words in print, you know, it reads really hard. Mm-hmm. I don't have a hard voice, and the way I talk is basically exactly like this. Yeah. I just might be saying strong words. Yeah. But in a soft tone. <laughs> What's the process like? You have a thought, and you think, I want to tweet this. The world must hear this. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you're in a unique situation because someone like me, I can tweet that, and I don't have the platform that you have, yeah. so it doesn't make the rumble. Right. That someone like you, even everything from like, you know, anything you say is subject to Mass millions. criticism. Yeah, yeah, immediately. So it's a lot of power. I, I don't really read um, messages that much. I read them more, and I engage more on Instagram, I would say, with, with people that leave messages. Um, but it's that damn pressure coming with a stupid picture every day. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I hate it. Some days you just don't want to look at your stupid face or have a stupid picture of yourself. And then I also don't know what, because I'm trapped in this weird, like, kind of world where I'm an activist. I'm supposed to post about that, but I'm also, like, well known for acting. It's fair. It's like I don't really know which way to go with Instagram. I, like, I'm confused. So I try to make it make sense as much as possible, tying in the two worlds, because I know a lot of people just want me to shut up and see pictures of Charmed. But I'm like, sorry, I'm a human and I get to do what I want. Yeah. Is that going to have less likes? Yes. But that's okay. I want to say, though, I want all of you. Thank you. That's kind of what I love about you. It's a real compartmentalization, I think, online is the whole thing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. But I kind of love that you are Paige from Charmed and this warrior. Well, Paige was a warrior. She was a gentle warrior, but she was. She was a very funny. I I wanted to play her. I wanted her to be like Baby Lucy, Baby Lucille Ball. That was kind of my basis for the character, just kind of sweet and goofy. And then she grew up a little bit, you know, as time went on. But yeah, she was half angel, half white lighter, and and, uh, half witch protecting the world from evil. So, you know, you just take it from uh, fake life to real life. So one last question about social media. You've tweeted updates about Harvey Weinstein's trial and sentencing. You've been in the unique situation of having to publicly re-traumatize yourself through discussing these experiences ad nauseum. Has there been any kind of healing that's come from these past couple of weeks? <sighs> I just wish he would fall off the planet. Like ever, I've had people, and this was a, the argument with the guy that was telling me I needed to act because I owed it to the world the other night. He's like, no, he needs to suffer in jail. I'm like, 
I just wish he wasn't here. Like, I'm just sick of, and I'm sure we all are sick, quite sick of hearing his name and his face and all of it. Just cease. You're a barnacle. You're a cancerous predator on the ass of humanity. Get the fuck off. You know what I mean? I'm seriously, get off. Like, yeah. we don't need you on this planet. We really don't need your kind because he is a serial predator. And if he gets exonerated, he will do this again. How much are you watching the trial? Not that much. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it filters in no matter what. Like, I get, you know, updates from lawyers or my lawyer, things like that. But trying to do, like, their lawyers, are, his lawyers are so disgusting. I, like, I just don't want their thoughts in my head. I feel that. But yeah. I am so, like, oh, my God, those poor women having to go on that stand with them. And, like, they're so brave. So brave. They're so brave. Yeah. But so are you. I had to go through it all again with the prosecutor, you know, somewhere else. And it was like, oh, my God. So it's like it never ends kind of feeling. And I would love to have my life back someday and never talk about this person again. Do you feel any sense of closure imminent? Mm, probably not until he's dead. No, I feel like he and I are strapped in this battle together until one of us is dead. That's how it goes. I, I energetically, we're like just locked. And it's a really disgusting feeling. I understand. It's like I just would love to be able to be like other people and live my life. That would be really nice, yeah. you know? I kind of get jealous of people like because everyone has problems everyone's got things everybody you know of course but when it's so outsized and so weird and so public because it had to be because I wanted it to be because it had to be because you have to bring down a structure and I really wanted to show people basically you can cut off the head of power because everyone bites at the ankles of it and just mm -hmm. whines at it and like stands outside of the picket sign which can have movement but also like righteous anger and in dealing with the press and knowing how to use media to your advantage yeah. can also move the mountains you yeah. know and that's what I did yeah and it was in a weird way that people hadn't really quite seen before and uh, my thing was like, you're going to grow up and change whether you like it or not. And a lot of people are like, fuck you. And I'm like, I don't care. We can't care about momentary discomfort in the bigger fight. We just can't. You know what I mean? We I don't. We mean. don't. And, and a lot of times right now, I'm like, we don't have time for metaphors. We're in a serious pickle. Ooh, pickles. That sounds good. <laughs> uh, two last questions. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you're interested in directing films, yes. more films. It's a dumb question, but because I, I'm so interested, but like, what would it take to get you back into an acting role? Well, one, I'm blacklisted. So there's that. Can no you, one has come to me in the last, and I understand this, you know, I'm not exactly like, you know, without little thorns coming out of me towards Hollywood, but nobody's approached me. So it's not really even an issue that I have to think about. So I don't know the answer to that. The money would be great, but I think it comes with so much trauma for me, you know? I did like a little tiny short thing as a favor to someone. It bugged my brain out so badly. Hmm. I, I actually went into the bathroom and started crying. I just started having all these weird, like, you know, there's just so much trauma linked into Hollywood for me that I, I don't know. Maybe, but I was with the director, Mike Lee, who's an incredible British director, you know, won Oscars, all this. And I was with him this summer. And he was like, remember, Rose, it's world cinema. It's not just Hollywood. It's world. So you never know. Also Jawbreaker, too. Well, come on, Darren. Come like, through. Calabasas saying. is calling us. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for your time. Mm, thank you. And I want to say, while I have you here in front of me, I know you've heard it. I love you. I think you are an incredible human being who has changed the world it's like an honor to know you to have your energy. And I imagine it can feel that there are so many forces working against you, but there are people like myself who see you, you and see what you've done and look 
at that with such reverence. So I want you to always know that in those moments when it might seem as though you're being attacked from all sides, people like us are here and we want you to succeed. And it's just, we love you. I love you. That made me tear up. Thank you, Evan Ross Katz. You're welcome. You're a wonderful human. Thank you. And thank you so much for making time. It's so appreciated. Of course. And it was good to laugh. Yeah. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced and edited by Alden Peters. This podcast is made possible in part by our supporters on Patreon. So we tip our hat to you all. Go to patreon.com backslash shut up Evan to get access to bonus content, including extended interviews and bonus clips. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for giving a shit about anything that I have to say. 